If you'd like to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 is where we find ourselves today. And I have been enjoying going through the Gospel of Mark. Mark is all about immediacy. Immediately he did this and immediately he did that. And very quickly he went from place to place. And I've been trying to go through the Gospel faster myself, but I'm finding myself slower than Mark. So um, I was hoping to get to the end of the chapter today, but in my study I just, uh, I just can't go any farther than that. There's just too many things that I want to talk about right here. So that's where we are. So last time uh, we were here we talked about Jesus who was coming out into his ministry. Uh, it was really the beginning of it. He was he was baptized. Uh, he didn't need to be baptized in the sense because he wasn't, he wasn't sinful. But it was a baptism of repentance, but he was identifying with man, if you remember. And the Lord affirmed that through a voice from heaven as well as the Holy Spirit as a dove coming down. And then he was tested in the wilderness, we remember, for 40 days. And Satan came to him and tested him like you would not believe at his weakest points. And he succeeded, Christ succeeded in coming through that 40 days and the angels administered to him. And then the last thing he did was he went and selected his team. And teamwork is what the church is about. And that's an interesting point. So he, he selected um, Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John. They were the beginning of the 12 apostles. There would be more that would that would be chosen, and we're just reminded uh, that we are to stimulate one another unto love and good deeds as a kind of a church uh, team in that sense. But these guys, he had planned for them. They didn't volunteer. They didn't ask to be on the team. He chose them, just like it is in our salvation. And um, I think it's um, God is the one who chooses his team too. And Spurgeon once said that he was glad that God chose him before he was born because he certainly would not have after he was born. And uh, there's some truth to that perhaps when we think about it just for a moment. But Mark is, uh, is telling us that Christ is ready now. Christ is ready and his ministry actually begins, his ministry among the people here. Now, when we look at this text here, um, there's other things that Jesus did in ministry, but Mark chooses by the Spirit and inspiration to give us these, there's actually five little vignettes here, and we're just going to look at two of them this morning. These are little illustrations from the life of Christ, and um, the first one really really talks here about his teaching. And, and uh, Christ was about servanthood, and that's what the Gospel of Mark is about, his servanthood. And he's serving now in, in this teaching capacity here, but Mark doesn't give us much theology. He just says he preached the Gospel here and there, and things of that nature. So this morning we're going to start by looking at verses 21 and verse 22 where he is teaching, and he teaches in an amazing way, in an amazing way, we could say. So uh, verse 21, I'll just read the text as we go this morning in the two places that we will look. It says, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. This is really, uh, we could say in the Gospel of Mark, it's really the beginning of his teaching ministry, and uh, his teaching ministry was really what he was about. So it's the very first one that's mentioned. He did a lot of other things. He did a lot of healing, you'll see in this section that's coming up. But, but it was really about preaching the Gospel. That was really what pervades all of it. And the healing and the miracles that he did only supported the preaching of the gospel. It drew attention to who he was. It authenticated who Christ was in the preaching and teaching of the gospel. So it says that they went into Capernaum. Now you remember that Jesus had gone down towards Judea to the south, 75 miles from Galilee where he was, down to uh, the area of Jerusalem there. And that's where he was baptized in the Jordan, <coughs> down there. So uh, he was there for a little while, he didn't stay too long, and then he came back up. He came back up and he came to Nazareth, that was his home, city, you know, Nazareth was. He was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up and lived 30-some years 
in Nazareth, largely unknown to anyone, didn't do any miracles, didn't do anything unusual there. He just was a, a son, probably helped take care of his brothers and sisters and his parents, and his father sort of disappears off the scene. We don't hear anything more about him after the birth narrative. And it seems like Jesus may have had a role in caring for the family along with his mother. And I think that would fit the idea of understanding what family is really about as Christ would be like us in all points in this world. But he comes, uh, he's up in Nazareth, but he, he's uh, opposed by the leaders as his ministry sort of begins there. And, and so they want to throw him over the cliff. And I've been up to Nazareth and there is a cliff there. And it's on a hilltop about... Um, 15, 20 miles south, west of uh, the Sea of Galilee, not too far from Galilee. <clears throat> and uh, they wanted to throw him off the cliff, and he just walked between them and left, and then he went down to Capernaum. Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee, and it's right there on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And the, the district of Galilee was bigger than just the sea. The district of Galilee was uh, about like Pierce County, about 40 by 70 miles or so. So if you think of Pierce County, you can think of Galilee like that. And in the middle of that was this body of water, which is really a freshwater lake. Very beautiful spot down there on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. But there, was a, there were a lot of people there. You go there today and you wouldn't think that there's that many people in that district, but there actually were a lot of people there in ancient times, and Josephus writes about it. He said there were about 204 villages, just villages alone, in the Galilee area, in that district. And, and there were somewhere around, it's, it's said from ancient history, that somewhere around 15,000 people in each village. It was a small town in each one. Now, if you add that up, that means there probably could have been around 3 million people in the Galilee area. So there was a lot of people to minister to. And it was actually a good place for Jesus to start his ministry because he, wasn't, he wouldn't be accepted at all really much down in Judea around Jerusalem. And that was already going to be a problem for him. So he, so he goes back to his home area, the area that he knows, very beautiful area of Galilee. It's very green if you go there in the springtime and even the summer. And it's the kind of place you kind of like to just spend a little more time in Galilee, you know, go out on the lake and so forth. But he was in Capernaum, and Capernaum was this uh, village that was one of the larger villages, and it was one of the more significant ones. It was a thriving fishing village, and Peter lived there. And you're not going to believe this, but they've actually found his house, and that's a picture of it. I've been there, we've seen it, and um, historians, archaeologists believe that this is pretty certain this is where Peter lived, not far from the uh, actual sea itself. I think it's a short walk from there. And um, if you go there, they, they say there's some religious graffiti, that's not bad, that was on the stones, carved into the stones, and various other things that they found indicate that this was really Peter's home, Simon Peter. This is where he was called from to become a fisher of men. He was a fisherman, of course. Has several rooms in it, has an area, a little courtyard in the center and so forth, and a typical house in the first century, stone built, and this is the remains of it because the walls have come down, but you can see there's a fair amount that they've excavated that you can see where it still was. And then it says, uh, while he was while uh, Jesus was there, we know that he, Jesus actually probably lived in the house with Peter. Uh, he was one of the disciples he chose. He was the, the leader, you know. And, and so it's very likely that Jesus actually lived in that spot also while he was there. It was his temporary headquarters while he was starting his ministry in Galilee. And it says in verse 21, it also says that immediately, there's the word that Euthu said that always comes up immediately, translated immediately, or straight away, or sometimes a little other ways, some 40 times in Mark. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue. And so there's a synagogue there as well. And we've been in the synagogue, and uh, the synagogue is right next to Peter's house. Got the synagogue picture there? Pop it up. There we go. There you go, and uh, if you think that's Nancy in the lower left, you're right, um, the, the one closest up. Uh, 
you recognize her anywhere. But anyway, that's, that's actually the remains of a synagogue that's right there. And probably the synagogue that was there in Jesus' time was partially destroyed and then rebuilt. And this is the rebuilt part, but on the same grounds that the old synagogue was. And uh, quite a bit there, as you can see. Um, the next picture shows another angle of the synagogue looking the other direction. And uh, we were on a tour there in 2011, been there one other time. And um, actually, it's so close that if you go through that door, it's only about 20 feet to Peter's house from there, I think, something like that. So it'd be really convenient to, to be right there in that synagogue. And that's always where Jesus started his preaching ministries in any area because that's where the people gathered and that's where the Jewish people were, if you, re, if you remember. So there were lots of synagogues. If there were 200 plus villages, there would be likely synagogues in all of them. And you could have a synagogue if there were 10 men who were, of course, older than 12 years of age, and you could form a synagogue and someone would be elected as the, the president of the synagogue there. And it was largely run by laymen who were there, except for the president, but they didn't have an official rabbi or Pharisee or anyone like that. And there would be visiting rabbis or teachers that would come through, and the synagogue president would appoint them to, to give a, a kind of a speech when they were in the synagogue if they were coming through that area. And Jesus was looked at as a kind of rabbi by people because he was called rabbi in some cases. And he may have developed actually a little bit of uh, a reputation for that when he was in Jerusalem, in Judea area, and then also in Nazareth. And um, the synagogues are really the preaching or teaching uh, institutions of the day. The tabernacle was in Jerusalem, but the tabernacle, there was no teaching that went on in the tabernacle largely. It was mainly a place for sacrifices and ritual over and over. But the synagogue was the teaching area. It was kind of like the local New Testament church in that sense because that's where the teaching was done. And um, actually there were lots of synagogues, not just in Galilee, but it is said by one historian that there were as many as 480 synagogues just in the Jerusalem area, just in Jerusalem alone. So some of these would be pretty small kinds of places. So what was it like when you went to the synagogue? You can kind of see the picture. There was a, usually a seat of Moses, which would be over on the left. You can't quite see it on the other side of that doorway. There was also a kind of a box or ark-like structure that kept um, the, the scripture in it, the, the law, and was, was to be read. So people didn't have Bibles. People didn't keep scrolls with the Bible on it around the Old Testament that they had. They went to the synagogue and it was read to them there. So that's how services were. And there were three parts to a synagogue service. The first part really was prayer. They would start with prayer, kind of like we do here. Then there was a reading of the law, the Old Testament law and prophets. And sometimes the congregation took part in this. And then, of course, there was a message that was given by some person that was appointed. It might be one person one week and another person another week. It was a little bit disjointed. Some traveling rabbi that would come through. Sometimes they would talk about the Old Testament. Usually if it was, it, held, it had to do with the liturgy of the Jewish religion, Judaism. It had to do with their traditions and all the legalism that had developed around it. And when they would do it, they would quote, they would quote the older or more ancient rabbis and what they had taught there in those places. So if you can imagine yourself going into a synagogue and here's a bunch of um, Jewish folks there in there and they're sitting around and, and a person gets up to teach and the teaching was done on the Sabbath, which would be Saturday, the seventh day of the week based on Old Testament, of course. And, um, and Jesus pops in to the midst of this and it says he entered the synagogue and began to teach. That's all Mark tells us. He entered the synagogue and you can imagine it there and he began to teach. He probably was given that privilege, probably was appointed by the synagogue president to do that. 
And what did he preach? Well, it doesn't tell us, does it? It doesn't tell us. My guess, and I think it's pretty good when you look at Jesus' preaching and teaching, my guess is he preached the gospel. Like it said earlier, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of God, however you want to describe it. He preached the gospel as he would have earlier. He preached the gospel as John the Baptist would have preached. Now, of course, he hadn't died on the cross and was buried and resurrected. That is part of the gospel also later on as it's in its fullness. But he preached about repentance. He he preached about the fact that they were sinners and you and I are sinners and we need to repent and come to the Lord for forgiveness. He preached about those kinds of things. And a change of mind and a change of heart is what repentance is. A, a turning around. He, he would preach that kind of message there. And um, turning to God, which was absolutely critical. Absolutely critical. Salvation, we would say, by grace alone. He would teach that kind of concept based on Old Testament principles. But that's what he probably would teach. And I have to guess on that. I think I'm pretty close, though. None of the other Gospels tell us exactly what he preached in this particular incident, but we know in other places how he preached, and he always dealt with people's sin. He deals with our sin. We need to just remember today is the Lord's table. We're remembering that he died on the cross as a, at the end of our service and that, and that he died for us, and the, the juice and the, uh, the bread remind us of what he did on that cross. But it's about the Gospel. It's about the gospel also. We think of it that way. So prepare yourselves in your hearts as we think about this just briefly. And then it says, in regard to his preaching in verse 22, verse 22, it says, They were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. So we do have a little bit of a hint of what his preaching was like. It was amazing. Of course, I think pretty much any of us would say whenever Jesus preached, it had to be amazing. He was God. No one could preach better than that. So here he is. He preaches. It's amazing. It was different from what the scribes had taught. It was different from what the Pharisees had taught, the rabbis and all of that. And um, how would it be different? How would it be different? Why was it so amazing? Why did it wake up all the sleeping people in the synagogue when Jesus taught? Well, because the other people that taught gave their view on this or their view on that or, or they would teach such and such rabbi said this or such and such Pharisee said that and the, the teachers of, of the past had taught. So they would, they would emphasize the law. They would emphasize tradition. They would emphasize allegorical interpretation on various things. And they would quote all these people that were in the past that they knew about when they would preach. And so that's the difference between what Jesus taught and what they taught. Now, by the way, the Babylonian captivity is in the background in the midst of all of this because the synagogues weren't around until after the Babylonian captivity. In that captivity, Israel was being chastised by the Lord. They were taken away to Babylon. Eventually they came back. And when they came back, um, they eventually started the synagogues. We don't know exactly when that took place. Sometime in that period between the the captivity and the time of Christ. So as it moves to closer towards the time of Christ, you see these synagogues all over the place being established where they could, they could teach the law and their various legalistic interpretations and various traditions that they added on top of the law and added and mounted them up. It became kind of like a, a big stone that was around their neck that they wore, that they carried with them, a heavy weight of legalism that came from all that. So uh, he preached. The best guess that we could give for his preaching might be to go to Matthew 5. You don't have to go there now, but the Sermon on the Mount, most people know that. Many people think it's the greatest, uh, probably one of the greatest sermons ever preached. Um, and we can see how Jesus taught and he really exposed, I won't say exposed in a bad way, but in a positive way, 
he would use an expository kind of method as he went through the Old Testament, the law, really, and explained the real meaning of it that they missed somehow. That was something like what went on. And people were amazed. And so when, when Jesus spoke, they were amazed at what he had to say. It just it blew them away. It means to be astonished. It means to be astounded or, or, or like being stunned, it would. Taken back or, or overwhelmed with what he was saying and, and dumbfounded because what Jesus taught, he didn't have to go to the authorities. He didn't need any authority because he was it. He didn't quote anybody. It was just his own words. So they were dumbfounded and they were startled. They had not heard anything like this before and it totally blew them away in our vernacular. He didn't wear elaborate robes. He didn't come with all the bells and things like the Pharisees did and whatever. I don't know what rabbis necessarily wore in terms of clothing. He was just who he was, Jesus of Nazareth there. He wasn't necessarily an imposing figure, no indication that his voice was really unusual or anything like that. He wasn't the kind of person that would try to promote himself and strut back and forth on the stage and try to make a big impression with all kinds of funny jokes and things. He just spoke and people listened. It was amazing, amazing. So uh, when you think about this just a little bit, what would it be like to stand and hear Jesus teach today? Well, as a New Testament church, we would say that we, we teach what Jesus taught, so we probably would say that it would be something like that, but when he speaks, whatever he said would be God's word. But he had the authority to do it because he was Son of God. The Spirit of God had dwelt in him as we saw a baptism in, and a course... God was behind all of it as he gave the approval. So when he spoke, people listened. And I've always, in my later years, as I've, I've read the words of Jesus throughout the Gospels, I've noticed one thing, and that is how insightful every statement, every word was that Jesus gave, and how he could on the spot come up with a response so amazing there. Now, when I speak, I don't have that authority. No preacher of the Bible has that authority in himself. I believe not the kind of authority that Jesus had. But if we understand the scripture well, we know that the authority that does come when our preaching is, is taking place is from the scripture, not from the man. It's from the scripture itself. And so it's, that's why it's so important that we clearly understand the Scripture, that we preach the Scripture, that we understand the language and what it means, and we preach the interpretation of it and the application of it as we go through the Word of God. So it's important the Scripture be taught. Nehemiah 8, verse 8, in the Old Testament, we see an example of even that in the Old Testament. It says that they read from the book, from the law of God, which they had found, by the way. It had been more or less lost for a while. They read from it, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. So they, they were preaching. In that particular case, in the book of Nehemiah, they were preaching really in a kind of expository way in the Old Testament. They were exposing the Old Testament for what it says and the meaning behind it and what it meant by the original authors. That's what, that's what biblical um, preaching is all about. That's what expository preaching is all about. So I wrote an article about that not too long ago, one of my blogs. I'm going to read another one telling you the advantages of it and why it's helpful and important, but I haven't done that yet, but I'll get to it. And it says also in Nehemiah 8, it says that for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. It had been so long since they'd really heard it. They wept when they heard it. And I think if we totally understand the importance of Scripture, it should bring us to that too, unless our hearts are hardened. So as we come to the Lord's table today, it's a good thing to think about just a little bit. Are our hearts open to what God is saying? I'm thankful that there has been a kind of return to 
really solid expositional preaching in our country in many areas, not all by any means, but there has been a re-emphasis on it, which is a good thing. But much preaching still is for itching ears, itching ears, which is what probably what took place there, generally speaking. It is what they call skyscraper preaching. If you haven't heard the term, it means one story after another as you build it up. Skyscraper preaching. Or maybe it's just a, a preaching that's full of lots of humor. I heard one fellow told, me, gone, told us he'd gone to church and hadn't gone to church before. And he loved the church so well because the pastor was so funny. He was so funny. I don't say Jesus being funny. Not that he didn't have a sense of humor, but that's not really what sermons are about. It isn't humor is God's gift as well. But that's not really what it's about. Or dramatics, so dramatic with all dramatics attached to it to kind of add to it. And there's, there's, a first, there's a place for those kinds of things, but that's not really what proper preaching is. Or springboard preaching. Springboard pe- preaching is where you take one verse and then you jump all over the place from there and to make it say what you want it to say. The prosperity gospel, where they just emphasize one wrong interpretation of Scripture, that you're going to get rich if you... Um, if you do what they say and give them your money in the long run. Sometimes it's book review preaching. I've read this book and this is what he says. I've read this, that book. That's pretty much kind of like what they were doing when Jesus stepped into this, to the synagogue there. They were reviewing what other rabbis had said. But when Jesus spoke, it was different. It was amazing. It was amazing. Beloved, I want to say one thing here, just a little bit. There's more to preaching than what the preacher says. The other part is what the listener hears. There's expositional preaching on the one side, but beloved, there's also expositional listening. Did you hear that? I had a book. I was given a book. I picked it up. I was at the Shepherds Conference. They gave it to us. I think it was called Expositional Listening. So I took it with me, and I was reading it on the train, and... uh, we were traveling uh, to California, and I was in the lounge car, sitting reading the book, and uh, the guy across from me, an older gentleman, says, does that say expositional listening? And I said, yes. And he says, do you know what expositional preaching is? And I says, I sure do. <laughs> I sure do. I heard you on that one, you know. And um, we talked about it, and he understood what it was, and he was part of some church that was like that, and he was delighted that I was uh, reading a book on expositional listening. So it takes some work on your part to hear it as well. There's the preparation of the heart before you come to church, is it not? There's that time of prayer, which we did have a wonderful time of prayer this morning earlier, and Paul led us here just also immediately before the service. But I think it can start before that on Saturday night. I always say getting ready for church starts on Saturday. Getting the kids' clothes out so you don't have to dress them in the car on the way to church. (laughs) Scripture reading, reading the scripture, reading the text ahead if you know what it is so you can kind of prepare your heart and, and understand it. Your attitude about the whole thing, your attitude about coming to church, getting there on time and, and not being late so you can get in on everything that's going on. Getting a good night's sleep, not staying up late, watching something that you don't need to watch, unless it's about expositional preaching, of course. (laughs) Being interested and and make sure the kids are ready and and propped for that, too, and and having your emotions at the right place. Sometimes our emotions are a little bit out of whack because something has happened in the week or that day or whatever the people were doing, and so our emotions are a little bit out of whack and we're kind of upset with somebody, and it might need, it might might be important for you to repent, you know, and Call somebody and apologize, whatever, if they have been offended by you. Prepare yourself so you can listen carefully to what God is saying through the words of God from the preacher. Some good words about expositional preaching in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, just jot it down. It says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully Hold fast to that which is good. I think that's talking about that kind of listening, isn't it? Hebrews 5.14. 
But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Solid food, trained senses. When you come to church, train your senses to understand. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And it's possible for false kind of teachers to be in churches. I mean, Baptist churches also. They're not immune from that. So it's very important to have a good sermon. Stories told about a lady that came up to her pastor and she thanked him for his good sermon that morning and he said, don't thank me, thank the Lord. And she said, well, it wasn't that good. It wasn't that good. And preachers need to remember that, those of you who are preachers or aspiring preachers, you're not as good as you think you are. Right, Chris? We're talking to each other. We talk about that all the time. We're not as good as we think we are. And there's always somebody that will give you some advice on that. Or little old ladies, in this case here, too. Actually, someone said that to me last week, something like that. I passed muster, she said. Praise the Lord. Um, So we have amazing. The people were wowed by his teaching. They were wowed. But that doesn't mean that they understood who he was necessarily. They were amazed because this was a novelty. Someone to come in and preach and teach like that. And now we come to the second vignette that we're looking at here this morning. And that one deals here with demons. And it's very much a part of what's going on. It's happening right here in the same moment, in the same synagogue, and so forth. So in your, in your Bible, follow along, we're on the screen. He commands demons to be silent. This is the second vignette showing Christ's power and ministry here. Just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him saying, Be quiet and come out of him throwing him into convulsions. The unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. We'll stop right there. So, guy walks into the temple, into the tabernacle, I mean. This man comes in. And he's got this unclean spirit. And uh, all of a sudden, this spirit speaks out. Speaks through the man. He uses his vocal cords, as demons will do if they infest a person here. I like to think that this man had probably been to that temple over and over and over, and it wasn't something new. Uh, He probably lived in the area. It's very likely. I'm, of course, more or less guessing at that, but I think it's probably pretty likely. And maybe he had been having problems and didn't understand everything that was there about that and didn't understand that maybe it was a demon and he was seeking for help but he never found any. He would find it today. He would find it. He came into the temple and uh, this demon started speaking here and uh, he's right in the synagogue. You can just kind of visualize that setting there with all the people around and and Jesus was there speaking and um, this Spirit cried out of his voice, and it was different than a normal, probably, person's voice, as um, those who have heard that kind of thing had heard. And he said, what business do you have? In other words, he knew something about the business of Jesus. And he wasn't happy about it. And he knew who Jesus was. He called him by name Jesus. And he knew where he was from, from Nazareth. Amazing, isn't it? He recognized Christ immediately, even though the people did not. The demon recognized Jesus for who he was, but the people did not. They just were amazed. Demons know a whole lot more about God than 
The people do. Because they've been around for a while. If you remember where they come from, those are part of the angelic angels that were made, the angelic clan that fell apart, that fell away, a third of them. Somewhere back around creation, and Satan led their rebellion, and so they were put into a state where they were now um, really opposing God. That was no possibility of repentance that we see there in the scripture. And so they have been around observing people. They are the, Satan is the prince of the power of the air, and their demons, his demons, are in that group all the time. And so they're among the people there in Nazareth and in Galilee and in the Galilee area. They followed Satan, and Satan being the prince of the powers, out to oppose what Christ is doing. Because he knows his ultimate end, and all of his angelic beings that followed him are demons or evil spirits. They're angels of light. Demons are not ugly. They're good-looking devils, you could say. By the way, the term Satan... Um, is a, a word that occurs, I think, only in the singular in the New Testament. But the idea of demons occurs in the plural, just about, just about every time. So there's lots of demons, but there's only one Satan. Satan's a ruler. And this was, this was an unclean spirit here, in this case here. He says, have you come to destroy us, is what the demon said. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. He knew. He knew who Christ was. He recognized it. And he was afraid of his destruction. He knew that eventually that, that the demons that followed Satan would go to the pit. Of course, we know that in the New Testament. It's very clear in the book of Revelation. Book Revelation 20, 21, we have a story there. Uh, the the um, prophecy that we have John give us there. He talks about Satan being there. He talks about being... Um, bound up for a thousand years during the millennial kingdom on earth, and, uh, but eventually he is released and his demons are with him and they'll be eventually thrown into the lake of fire and burned forever and ever. It's real. Believe me, if there's anybody that believes hell is real, it's the demons and it's Satan. And they know what it's all about. They've never been there. They've not been there. There's, not, there's none that have been there except a very few earlier on. But they've not been there and they've not communicated, but they know very well what they're in for. Because they've been around, they've been listening to believers, they've been listening to the Old Testament, they're familiar with all of those things, they knew who the Messiah was, and they knew that he was the Holy One from God also, and that they would ultimately be destroyed. And this, this demon was absolutely terrified, I think, when he knew Jesus was there. And so he spoke out because he was fearful for his ultimate demise. He panicked when he saw Jesus. He freaked out, if you will. He cried out, it says there. It must have been quite a scene for the people to see. It must have been. Where, by the way, are demons now? Well, they're still in the same place they've always been until that eventual day in the book of Revelation, they're still here. They are very much present and even in, even in dwell people in some parts of the world. And my son Caleb saw that up firsthand in the, in the remote tribes of Brazil and the Amazon jungle. Because those people are open to it, but America, we're, we're science-oriented. We know better than that. This is a new era for us. So we don't believe in demons in America. And demons know it's not a good idea to make themselves well-known, so they work behind the scenes. There may be demons in this room. I don't know. The demon, when he responded to Jesus, he says, Have you come to destroy us? The word us is a plural noun there. He wasn't referring just to himself or to the man necessarily, but to other demons who were in league with him. Because we know that they'll all be destroyed eventually. Good thing to keep in mind. Demons are around. And I think they're around in lots of ways. And the favorite place they probably like to go is church. In fact, they're probably there before you are on Sunday morning. 
you know. They might be in your car, I don't know. It's not fashionable to believe in demons. I know that, and I know that I'm on shaky ground with some people because we're very astute, intellectual, scientific people today. But they are real, and this demon was absolutely panicked and stunned and freaked out by what he saw when Jesus walked in. He knew who he was before the people did. The demon understood and cried out. The people were amazed. It was different. Where do they dwell? They dwell around us, everywhere. We don't have to believe them in. We don't have to believe that they're existing to, for them to exist. It's not something, a figment of our mind, but they are definitely here. They can indwell unbelievers, but not believers. I believe this very sincerely. They cannot dwell a, indwell a real believer because the Bible says, greater is he, that's the Holy Spirit, that is in you than he that is in the world. 1 John 4, 4 or 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. And behold, the new has come. Spirit of God is within you. That doesn't mean that the demons won't try to work from the outside in some ways. Are you in Christ? Are you protected? Do you have on the full armor of God? Because we still have to do battle with Satan in a way, and the demons. And Ephesians 6 makes that clear. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That means you need to know your Bible need to know your Bible. You need to be in church. You need to be in Sunday school. You need to, to, to constantly be working on it because Satan wants to trip you up. Even if he can't come in you, he will try to trip you up. Well, those demons that are out there, whether they're trying to trip us up or whether they're indwelling some unbeliever, are eventually going to be delf, dealt with. Jesus said in 25... Chapter 25 of Matthew, it says, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire for which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So there's a place prepared for them, and this demon knew that very well, and he was not, not excited about it at all. That's where they go in the end, and that's why he was so panicked. Verse 25, Jesus rebuked him and said, Be quiet and come out of him. In other words, he just spoke. He commanded them. Jesus could do that. He commanded. There was no incantations. There was no little potion that he mixed up and sprinkled on somebody. Um, he didn't have to do anything special. He didn't have to have an exorcism. He just said, come out. Be quiet. Told him, shut up. And come on out. Come out. It's an order. I believe it's in the, in the imperative in the Greek. No incantations, simply come out. Now what are we to do if we come across someone that, is, that we believe may have demon influence or actually a demon into them? We pray for them. And you pray that the Spirit of God will touch their hearts and they would be saved because when the Spirit comes in, the demons go out. Well, this demon's going to go out all right. He's going to go out in verse 26. It said it was throwing him into convulsions. And Jesus had told this demon, you get out of him. He ordered him. So he's thrown into convulsions. And, and the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice, another loud voice here, and came out of him just like that, without any kind of incantation, without any kind of spell from Jesus, without any kind of curse or hex put upon the demon, um, without any kind of secret rites. The demon just came out. The man was convulsing. Actually, the word in the Greek has the idea of his stomach was turning over. There. Amazing and astounding kind of thing. Display here. Dramatic display as he was on the floor of that synagogue, wreathing around, perhaps even throwing up. I think that kind of thing can happen there. Convulsing, shuddering, quivering, trembling. There, it must have been pretty scary, pretty scary situation. Screaming at the top of his lungs. Now as we come to the communion, 
time this morning, we should just be reminded of the fact that we fight a real battle. But it's very important if you have struggled with your sin, if you have struggled with who you are, that you know Christ as your Savior. And I invite you to turn to Him today if you don't. And if you do and you're having a struggle, take, take courage that the Lord is in you and you will be fine. But we need to put on the full armor of God in the midst of this. So here's this man, here's this poor fellow with this demon in him. The demon comes out, man's on the floor just wreathing around, the demon screaming and so forth. And verse 27 now says, they were all amazed. They were all amazed, the people. They were amazed before, but they're really amazed now that he can tell the demons to come out. It wasn't just the teaching, but that he could do that. So they had a debate, says there, among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching? With authority? They hadn't seen that kind of authority before, but this guy could also cast out demons. It's Jesus. He commands even the evil spirits, the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So they didn't have any problem understanding demon possession, although Americans do. We do have a problem in our country that way. And people deal with it various ways, and if you go to a Catholic church, they will do an exorcism for you. But Jesus is the only one that really can do it. To deal with ancient demon possession, what they did, and one cemetery was found that affirms it, was they did a thing called tree panning. And so the person would have a small hole drilled in the back of his skull for the demon to come out. And supposedly that would take care of it. The guy probably died, so they didn't know for sure. You know. <laughs> but one cemetery was found uh, where there were about 140 people with those holes in the back of their heads, and six of them, um, six of them, um, or 140 people in the cemetery, I think six of them had the holes in the heads. It was quite amazing, quite amazing. This is in ancient Israel. It was a common thing, common thing. So some people tried exorcism and so forth. People were amazed, but the demons were terrified. People were amazed because they didn't totally understand who Jesus was, but the demons did. Plural, demons. James 2, verse 19, says, You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe, and they, what? Shudder. They shudder. They shudder. Pretty amazing stuff that was going on here in this time when Jesus is really in the first part of Mark showing he has power over demons. He has power over Satan. That no rabbi did, that no doctor did, that no psychologist did, no person of any kind of authority had it except Jesus. It would be heresy for him to go to Jerusalem early on, so he comes to Galilee instead. And that's where he finds this man. He'll find more healings to come on. And we look in the next couple of vignettes down the road here next week. Uh, you will find very clearly that there was much more healing to take place and much more difficult than even this one to show Christ's authority over these things. But look what happened after all of this in verse 28. Verse 28, last verse here. Immediately, there it is. There's that word again. I love it. Wish I could be as immediate as Jesus was and John, Mark. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding districts of Galilee. Like I said, maybe three million people in the districts of Galilee, over 200 villages. It just suddenly went everywhere. People left that synagogue and they went and told people everywhere. They didn't totally understand who Jesus was, but they heard that he was the Son of God because the demon said so. The demon said so. There was actually outside of Capernaum, if you go there today, it's really a nice place to visit. Um, along the front, in ancient times, not today, but along the front, not far from Peter's house at all, there was a promenade, kind of like a walkway along the beach that was about eight feet high, historians say in their excavation, and about a half a mile long, I think it went in both directions, and if you went one way, you went to the, to the west side of the lake, and the other way, you'd go to the north and the east side of the lake more really was on the north side already. And people just 
came out of that place. They probably told all the people in Capernaum themselves, which were probably several thousand or more. And um, they passed the word along. They went to all the villages in the east and the west side of the, of the city, and they began to spread the word everywhere into all the surrounding districts. It went like fire. It went like fire. And people now are hearing about Jesus, and they were going to come, and they were going to hear more. And they were going to hear some of this in Capernaum. Well, do you know Christ? Are you walking with him? Um, has Satan been bothering you? If you're a believer, you need not fear. If things have not been going right in your life, just know that God has authority even over what Satan does. And that uh, he can watch over you. And sometimes those things, like the temptation that Jesus went through in the wilderness, are for our purification and betterment. But if you know Christ, you're welcome to take of the communion table as it comes around. It reminds us again of the rest of Jesus' ministry in those three years where he went to the cross, died, was buried and resurrected and shed his blood for us that we might have the forgiveness of sin. And he preached the gospel of God, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel that we understand, but in the fullness now of the picture of his resurrection from the dead. We're going to pray. We're going to ask the Lord's blessing. If you don't know Christ, feel free just to reserve yourself. Anyone is welcome, if they know Christ, to take of the Lord's table. We don't hinder you from that, but you need to take your own inventory of your life as we bow our heads and pray, and as our men will then come and serve the communion from the front back. Lord, we thank you for your grace today. We thank you for the Lord's table. We know that you provided it for us as a, as a reminder. We call it an ordinance of what you've already done for those who have turned to walk with Christ, hopefully been baptized as a symbol of that, as they're commanded to, and then, and then walking with Christ, Lord. We're thankful for that, and we're thankful for your body as we think of it on the cross. We're thankful for your blood that was shed for the remission of sin. We're, we're thankful for the ultimate picture that all the sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed to in your death on that cross. And that you have victory not only over death but over Satan and all of his demons who know that there is an end yet coming for them. May your hand be on those who struggle this morning, those of us who have some issue in our life. Maybe it's a sin that has been there and we struggle with it. Maybe we know Christ. If we do, Lord, just, just in comfort, encourage them. Lord, and if they don't know Christ, I pray that they would simply just turn to you in repentance, cry out for salvation and forgiveness that is only found in Christ Jesus. Bless these elements, we pray this morning, as they picture that in Jesus' name. Amen.